and welcome to the latest edition of How Might We? And today my guest is Chris Gadd. And the question we're going to be looking at is how might we not waste money on training? So Chris, would you like to introduce yourselves to the audience, please? Yeah, great to be here, Scott. Thank you for inviting me. And yeah, my name is Christina Gadd, or Chris, I don't mind whichever, founder of How to Accelerate Learning and author of a book which is called How Not to Waste Your Money on Training, hence the title for this podcast. And we work with uh, subject matter experts, trainers, facilitators, line managers, anyone who wants to learn better and faster uh, to, to enable people to perform better. Because the ultimate thing is about improving performance in some way, not just for the sake of it. And uh, love what I do. Absolutely love what I do. I do a bit of coaching on the side as well, which is, it sounds a bit dodgy, doesn't it? Do a bit of coaching on the side, but actually I genuinely, I do coaching and, and mentor also L&D managers as well, which uh, again is something that I love to do. So that's me. Okay, well, welcome. And I think this is a subject I've been talking a lot about recently. It's not so much about the wasting money. It's more about aligning what we do to get the performance, as you say. So I think I put something on LinkedIn the other day that says, people don't pay for your training, they pay for the impact. Absolutely. Do you know that's such a good um, statement? Because one of the first things that um, I would recommend to anybody who is is looking at, um, you know, how might we not waste money on training is find out what the organization actually needs you know and that's a that sometimes is a big stumbling block because you know some people that i speak to said oh yeah yeah we we did we did a, a learning needs analysis and i said well what did you do and they'll say things like uh, well we had a chat with a couple of the stakeholders and i'm waiting for the next step that they might have done to confirm what they've you know what they found out or whatever and that's it so some people think that just having a conversation with a couple of people is is enough to align themselves you know and actually it's it's a lot deeper than that you know it's about being nosy about what the organization does and I'm helping at the moment an L&D manager who wants to create a, a learning strategy and he needs to know what the organization are doing first of all and the organization aren't that clear about their direction so how on earth are you meant to create a, an L&D strategy if the organization aren't clear on what they're doing well, I think the first opportunity is for L&D then to help the organisation develop its strategy and facilitate that conversation. And then it then becomes quite apparent. You can then say to the organisation, OK, how can we support you achieving these goals? Yes, absolutely. So but it's finding I think one of the key things is finding the right people to talk to first off, you know, who are the people who are key in this so you know let's say you discover that you know the um, the actual strategy for the organization is a bit woolly who are the real key people to talk to and in in different organizations that's going to be different people so there's not like a template which you can say go and speak to x y and z you've got to find out you've got to know about your organization every organization is going to be different and so it's, you know, one of the first things I recommend for people to do is to do a stakeholder analysis grid, you know, to find out, you know, who are those stakeholders that you really, who are really interested in this and will also support you in this as well and give you the backup and the resources and, you know, bring on board those people who may not be for you, as it were. So, yeah, just finding out more about who is it that we should be talking to, you know, get that out of the way. 
So, I mean, you've mentioned that a lot of that is just finding out and you talked about being nosy. I think I might rephrase that a little bit. So curious, I think I prefer the word curious. Yeah, curious is probably a more professional word, isn't yeah. it? I think it's, I think we should, In I think L&D being curious is possibly one of the biggest drivers of what we should be doing because it's curious about what we're doing, but curious about why we're doing it first. And then you say, then who do we need to have on board? And then how does it fit within the context of our organisation? Yeah, and I think curiosity is one of those things that if you are curious, it's not threatening. You know, that if somebody comes to you and says, okay, so Scott, we need you to deliver this programme to 100 people. We need you to roll it out to everybody and we need it to be done in two months' time. You know, if you say, well, I don't think this is the right way to go about it because, you know, I think we should be doing this. It may sound like you're, you know, you're sort of railing against what they're saying or disagreeing. But actually curiosity is, oh, that's really interesting. Why this group of people and why now? What's happened? You know, and genuinely having those questions in your back pocket that you can ask people what's really going on and what's the evidence to support this so if they tell you there's this big issue with you know maybe uh, complaints or whatever you know say well have any complaints as how how much has it risen you know who's affected most mostly when do these complaints come in is it a particular product is it a particular service you know so just having those questions rather than just accepting go do this you know and thinking well i'll just have to go and do it you know curiosity is a fantastic trait to actually develop and and actually just listening to what they're saying and holding that and just sort of saying well why you know asking the whys and about the evidence and everything and that's the thing you know just I mean that question in itself what evidence have you got to to support this you know is going to maybe stop someone in their tracks you know maybe they'll then say I've had people say to me it's a gut feeling I know that this is going wrong or whatever so how will you know if I put it right will be my next question you know so it's sort of like steering people in the right direction and I've got a consultancy model that I use it's it's a mnemonic it's h-i-r-e what's happening what are the what are the issues uh, what are the ramifications and what do you expect to, to happen and actually just having that mnemonic in my back pocket equips me then if I'm having a conversation being caught on the hop from somebody asking me can you do this can you roll it out I think right okay ask them what's happening ask what the underlying issues are ask them what the ramifications what if we do solve it what if we don't solve it how much does it cost to not do anything at all all of those things I've got that in my back pocket and I can ask the right questions so I quite like so that's um, there's me trying to work out it sounds like higher that was me higher it is higher it is h-i-r-e it yeah, I is my pen handy because i was going to write it down oh no i forgot my pen okay so higher so the mnemonic because we all i think it's but what you're saying i think it's appropriate that we ask those questions within lnd so we don't get sort of the scenario you you said where we end up just being order takers where somebody yeah. said you know what we need to fix this training is the answer send people on a training course and then everything will be everything will be fine absolutely I think yeah the perception that a lot of organizations have of what L&D and training is capable of doing. But I think L&D is capable of so much more, but we've got to make or have those conversations to raise that level of awareness about how much more we can actually deliver for the organization. Yeah, and I think on top of curiosity, there is a little bit of courage required because if you have been 
an order taker. And if you have been doling out the training, change tack all of a sudden, somebody is sort of like going to go, oh, what? But we're used to you doing this when we tell you to, you know. So it is going to take a little bit of courage to do that, because the first time you start to ask those questions, somebody may well say to you, but we just want you to deliver this. We've decided that this is the, the, the solution to the problem, you know? And, and my question will be, well, tell me more about the problem that you're trying to solve, you know? How will you know if we've solved it? How big is the problem, you know? How much money is it losing you or is it losing reputation for you or whatever? But, you know, it's sort of like, yeah, if you can add, add a list, have a list of qualities, there's curiosity, AKA nosiness, as well but also we've got a a little bit of courage as well you do need a little bit of courage i think another thing possibly is influence because l and d in in most organizations does not have positional authority so we can't actually go and tell people to do something so we have to work and say understand our stakeholders understand uh, what makes them tick and what they're trying to achieve so we can influence people around us in what we're trying to do and how we can help them to get their buy-in and get their support because obviously we need, quite often we need stakeholders or sponsors support to drive any type of program through. Yeah, and, and the way that we get influence is by aligning ourselves with the right people, but also about developing that reputation that we've not just delivered something, which we, we, we said we were going to deliver it and we delivered it and it was great, everyone was happy, all the happy smiley sheets were great, but actually we've had some impact and we can sort of say, what that did was we improved this by X percent or we reduced this by this percent or whatever, you know, that we can actually put some some numbers on it. And some people want to talk to them, you know, they're a bit wary of all this, you know, the numbers bit and how you get the numbers, how you analyze them. And I keep saying to them that if you align yourselves with the right stakeholders, they will have access to those numbers. You know, so if it's if it's an issue with customer complaints and it's the customer service manager wants you to roll out some some training, that customer service manager will have their finger on the pulse or should have their finger on the pulse. They should know what numbers you're going to be looking at. And so actually, sometimes L&D may not even have to do any measurement or analysis or anything. But I think there's this perception that once you start to ask those questions that you're going to have to somehow become a, a data analyst and, and I, I do actually help people look at uh, data say in a spreadsheet or whatever and show them how they can start analyzing it without even doing any maths you know just by playing around with some pie charts or different types of graphs or just with colors you know red amber green you know whatever's standing out to you as a, a really bad figure or something that's standing out that's a very good figure, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's lots of things that we can do, but we don't have to necessarily be um, data analysts to be able to do it. But it's the influence part comes from, I think, developing a reputation that we deliver, but not just deliver courses, you know, that we deliver something which makes an impact in the organisation. And I think that's partly because I was... Uh... Another quote I said, it says, don't look at learning or training as an event, look at it as a sort of a journey or a process. And the end of that process is once somebody has done what we are going to do with them, whether that be uh, a couple of days training courses, using a multitude of tools that we have available, it's that then 
how are we going to measure and support? And this is, I think, where really is working with the stakeholders. How are we going to help these people apply what they've learned in the workplace? Mm, yeah. And line manager involvement is one of these statistics that keeps cropping up. If you look at some of the uh, research that Towards Maturity have done in the past and the CIPD, line manager involvement is, is crucial and they are crucial stakeholders. And again, people um, that I speak to in L&D, you know, they're looking at, well, how do we measure if it's had an impact in, in their performance back in the workplace? Because, you know, we lose touch with them. And how do we actually do that? Well, it's not really our job, is it? If we work well with the stakeholders, we can, we can help and support line managers and give them guidance on how they might do it. But ultimately, if line managers aren't measuring the performance of their teams, I have to ask what they're doing. You know, because surely a line manager's role is to develop their teams as well as um, achieve the team's goals through that team. You know, they're not going to be doing it all themselves. They're meant to be doing it through them. So if they've got issues in performance, then they need to know how, how they measure that performance as well. I think that goes back to your first question about asking why. So what is it that is happening? What's the story behind this request? if you're a manager saying i've got issues with customer service our customer services have gone down and then you might be asking okay what type of complaints are we having what's the what well, then we can actually be very specific about what we include in that development because it meets those specific behavioral process changes we need to improve and then i think that when you work with the managers and the stakeholders then that gives you the metrics because you've got the understanding at the beginning of why which you're talking about in your and they're like, okay this is what's happening this is this is our evidence to support the fact is this needs we need help with this and then you can look at okay what's happening after and you need to have that going back to the curiosity you need to have that curiosity and and remove a certain amount of fear of actually sort of asking those questions you know just being not being afraid to ask those daft questions because years ago, I mean, I qualified as an engineer and I worked in engineering. And so I was in the business sort of thing and I knew how the business worked. When we're in L&D, we come into an organisation not really knowing much about the business. And so one of the first things we should be doing is actually finding out. And actually, we are in a great position to ask those daft questions you know, and I, I remember working with various clients and working with team leaders in different departments, sort of spotting where something was going wrong because I was asking those questions, which nobody else was asking. There, there were lots of assumptions about how things should work together and between certain departments. But I would notice that actually this team aren't really speaking to that team in the, need, in the way that they need to be spoken to, you know, and, and they're not being communicated the right information in order for them to do their job in the best possible way. So we are in a, a unique position in, in learning development to oversee lots of stuff. And, and we need to not be afraid of, of asking those daft questions, you know, even down to, so what is this widget? What does it do? And if it doesn't work, what happens, you know? Just asking those daft questions. And I think that could be true for a lot of departments that go that work cross-functionally because it's about getting the deeper and understanding we have 
the better we can help. As a, it, and because we sometimes look not necessarily from the outside, but from a different perspective, we can see things that other people might not be able to see because from their department, they're assuming things are happening. But because we look at three or four departments, we can see potential workflow issues or communication issues that you've just um, identified through that. Yeah, and I think people, people also make the mistake of thinking, well, I'll go and speak to that department and find out what's going wrong. You know, so we've had loads of complaints in. So let's go to the, you know, customer services or whatever and speak to everybody about it. And they have a conversation. And that's not the whole story, though, because there are other people who are involved. You know, we've got the, the customers, we've got the people who are providing the products or services as well. So it's, you probably know this already, but it's called triangulation. When you're gathering data, you need to triangulate, you need to look at different. Um, data sources sounds like it's really technical, but you need to look at different perspectives. Let's call it perspectives. So I might talk to the customer service manager and that's his perspective. It's all data. It's qualitative data that was, you know, when, when we ask the opinions and everything, but I might survey the customer services team. And so that, that, that survey might provide some quantitative data, some numbers and scales and what have you, but it might also provide more qualitative data. And that's, you know, the opinions. And again, it's, it's I suppose, Alan, do you need a bit of education about what's the difference and when do you want opinions or when do you want actual numbers? You know, I, I often get asked that and, and how much, you know, opinion do you, you you collect and how much data do you collect and what's the right balance well the opinions you know if you've got 5,000 people that, that work and something's going wrong you can't ask for 5,000 people's open-ended opinions you know it's just too much to actually be able to handle but if you do a survey where it's sort of like scaling things, you know, one to six or whatever, or ticking boxes or whatever, then that makes it easier. You can analyze that data. But what gets you looking in a particular area in the first place may be some qualitative stuff, some opinions in the first place. So the customer services manager, when they come to you and say there's a, there's a problem and, and you say, what's the evidence to support it? So well, I've just got this gut feeling it's in this department. That gut feeling, you know, you shouldn't let go of it, but you shouldn't treat it as if it were gospel. You need to then get some evidence to back it up, whether or not it is the gut feeling is right. Because um, in my book, I talk about, the fact that gut feeling is actually a valid way of actually exploring something because I remember the CIPD a number of years ago, they did three papers on neuroscience and it was about insights and it was all about uh, whether or not intuition, one of the papers talked about intuition and what intuition was actually made of. And, you know, people think, oh, intuition, it sounds a bit weird, a bit spiritual, perhaps, or a bit, you know, funky or whatever. But actually what they found was that the intuition was built up of maybe years of experience, knowledge, you know, stuff that happened to people. So it wasn't just this spurious thing. It was actually built up of layers of experience and, you know, going through these issues and solving problems and all the rest of it. So never underestimate the power of, you know, your gut instinct, what might be going on. And that's a valid question 
to ask somebody is, is what's your gut feeling about it? Where do you think it's going wrong? And then go measure it, go send a survey or whatever. Okay. No, I like the fact is that anyone's opinion is a valid source of data. And no matter where that opinion comes from, but yes, intuition and about the neuroscience, about why you feel it in the gut as well, rather than that's where yes. you because it is real. You get that feeling in the gut and there's neuroscience and sort of how the, how the chemicals work that create that. that I can't recall what they are exactly, but I have read about it. Yeah, um, I've read about it too. And I'm sure there are some people who are into brain science that could actually tell us exactly what it is that um, creates that sort of feeling in your guts. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I do think is yeah the gut reaction or gut instinct is as you say is, is layers of experience seeing things and as the uh, CIPD have been banging on now for nearly ten years is about getting that insight driven HR and L and D and it's about to stop wasting money and actually start utilizing our money more effectively because I think that's one of the biggest challenges we may face in L and D is about we quite often when things start going wrong in organizations or economy-wise, economically-wise, is our budget is one of the first to be cut. Absolutely, yeah. And people, you know, numbers get trimmed. And yet if we were, if we were actually um, making a difference to the bottom line and demonstrating that, would they cut L&D so readily? I doubt, I doubt it, you know, and it's, it's, that's part of our remit, I suppose, is to show our worth and to demonstrate you know, the value that we actually bring. And if we're not doing it, again, you've got to ask, you've got to ask yourselves why. And, and I just wanted, there was something popped into my head while you were talking there, Scott. And it's about the fact that when I speak to people about needs analysis, they often revert back to like training needs analysis or, or learning needs analysis. And I, I do call it needs analysis because if you call it training needs analysis, it, it means that you've already decided that the solution to this problem is training. And if you call it learning needs analysis, you it's a bit broader, but you're still assuming that people have to learn something. Whereas needs analysis is looking at, well, maybe it is training, maybe it is learning, but actually, is there anything else that's going on under the, under the bonnet that actually isn't working? And... I spotted in one organization that the senior managers weren't really talking to some of their team leaders enough. Some were, some weren't. And that was a gut instinct because of something somebody had said. And I put it into a survey, just a question, how, how much time do you spend with your senior manager? Is it just enough, too much, um, or not enough? And funnily enough, those that were considered bad team leaders also weren't spending that much time with their senior managers. They weren't getting regular feedback. They didn't know in which areas they were. They were. So actually sort of having that, that gut instinct and also asking the right questions focuses it in and, and the language that we use, you know, the language, are we looking at a TNA or an LNA or an NA? What is it we're looking at? And I've had discussions with people about whether it should be called a needs analysis, whether it should be a performance analysis. Well, I think we're talking about the same thing. Once we got beyond, beyond learning and beyond training, we're talking about just something which is impacting the organization. So you can call it performance analytics, you can call it whatever you want, but it's, it's I think it's, we're talking about the same thing, you know, um, in, not just calling it training or learning needs analysis. Does that make sense, Scott? 
No, I think, again, it's like the evolution of when we were training these partners, we do training needs analysis. Now L&D, we do learning needs analysis. But I think learning or L&D departments now need to move away from just thinking about provided the learning and become that sort of central strategic consultative role in an organization where they can say, we can, because of our perspective, we can see things, we can ask questions, and we can identify things like you were talking about. This isn't a learning need. This is a managers, senior managers, and the teams that aren't performing as well. The managers of those teams aren't having the opportunity to get constructive feedback. So that could just be, it could then, that could just be, this is what we've identified and give that information to the senior management team. And they might say, right, we need to put a process in place or we need to encourage people, whatever else it is for it. Yeah. To and to me, that is as valid a learning opportunity because we're providing information for somebody to change behaviors or performance. Yes. And the reason why they're not giving um, regular feedback may have nothing to do with the amount of training that they have. They may have been on training courses to do with feedback skills, but it may not be. Maybe that they're not good at delegating. And so they don't have time to stop and give feedback and develop people. So it may it may sound like semantics, you know, the difference between training needs analysis and learning needs analysis and needs analysis. But If you go into something looking for training needs that are going to come out, that's what you're going to find. So every problem is going to have the solution of training. If it's learning that you're looking at or looking for, again, that's the only solution. It's broader than training. But if you go in with a thought of um, needs analysis, it means that you might identify things which are going wrong with processes. There might be poor communication. There might be a lack of resources, a whole host of other things. And it's not our job in learning development to fix it. It may be just that we identify it and we say, this is what's going wrong. And we then use everybody else to to solve that problem you know the people who are in it perhaps may be the best people to solve that problem absolutely and i think that that speaks to the evolution of where you can see l and d so years ago it was training development and we used to train these analysis because we were seen as training providers now we say we've got a broader context where we talk about learning these analysis and providing learning solutions but i do think there is a very fine line and i've got to write about this i haven't done it yet between l and d and od and I, yes. I, yeah. If L and D, the next the next natural evolution of L and D to me is about that organization development, which brings that encompasses that what you were talking about the needs analysis and saying, okay, so we we can't provide the solutions for you, but what we can do is we can guide you, we can provide the framework and help you find your own solutions to whatever's going on. And it's funny you should mention that because I've had many a conversation with people who call themselves OD specialists, and I like look at them and go. So what is it that you do that's different from what I would do? Isn't it just that good L&D is good OD as well? Should we have that distinction? I don't know. I mean, it's a whole different, I'm not sure. It's a whole different podcast, isn't it? I do. It's definitely something I'm going to write about is I think I, I, to me, effective L&D is basically OD. Yeah. Um, transition because it's as you say it's not accepting it's not just looking at learning solutions it's not but it's looking at that context and understanding the transference of something so it it broadens our area of looking at something so we look at okay so we need to prepare people for learning we need to do the learning itself but then we need to work with aspects of the organization ensure that learning can be transferred into the organization so what's the context what's the management support what's the process what's the workflow what needs to be in place for those behaviours 
that we expect to see at the end of uh, a program to be delivered in the workplace. I think that is good L&D, which to me then goes straight into where OD sits. Absolutely. But we won't get lost down that rabbit hole. We are talking about how might we not waste money on training, aren't we? And I think the thing that hasn't come up as yet is about finding the story in the data. So once you've decided what what you are going to measure with your stakeholders. It's about finding the story. And I think people think that data is definitive, as it were, that if you collect the data, you can prove something. But we, I also talk in my book about biases, you know, that if you are looking... Uh, to prove something or disprove something, you can easily find that in data. And so it's being aware of your own biases, but also looking at different ways in which you can measure these things to confirm or refute a hypothesis that you might make. So while I'm collecting data, there are certain things that people might say, which sort of like arouse my curiosity and think, oh, I wonder what's going on here. And how might I measure that? You know, what's going on? What's the story here, you know? And so I might put out a survey and calculate, you know, whatever I need to calculate and average whatever I need to average. And I might find that, yeah, that's true. That is happening. But I would want something to confirm it as well. And the story that you get in the end is an approximation. It's not sort of like it's a snapshot and it's an approximation of what's happening at that moment in time as well. And I think people need to realize that that, that there's an expiration date to data as well. It's, you know, oh, yes, we did. We did an employee engagement survey in um, 2015 and we, they were all really happy with us, you know. So data has got an expiration date and we also need to be picky about where the data um, comes from because uh, another thing that I realized as well was that you might ask two lots of people the same question and get completely different answers so for example when I was talking to some senior managers in this one company and asking them to rank their team leaders which were the best and which were the were not so good towards the bottom but I also got them to rank themselves to self-score these team leaders and some of the ones that were at the bottom of the senior managers list miraculously floated up to their own self-scoring sort of like platform somewhere way above what they were actually doing and that raises more questions in itself because the questions are things like don't they know that they're not very good at this is that what the problem is or is it that they're just not being um, truthful or honest with themselves or honest in this questionnaire what sort of a culture is it you know that if they admit to not being good at this what do they think will happen and so Sometimes data raises more questions as well, you know, but it, but if you keep curious, then you, you will find somewhere, you know, down at the bottom, when you keep asking that question, why you'll find somewhere what the problem might be and be able to define it a little bit better. Absolutely. I think when I do look at data and I say a good analyst, a good analytics or a good analyst of data can tell a story. Yes. And tell, don't tell me what the data is. Tell me what the data is telling you. Tell me what's the story in that data because anyone can produce data. Anyone can gather data, but then it's about finding those links, those questions, those depths, and also a good, as you say, a good mix between quantitative and qualitative because to me, the quantitative tells me what, the qualitative tells me why. 
Yes, yeah. And, and the right amount of data to then inform some of your decision making as well. So is this a training course? And the answer might be, yes, it's a training course. But I think in L&D, we, we too easily sort of like go straight from this is the problem. Here's the training course that we need to solve that problem, you know, and it may not be, it may be some other, it may be, well be some other form of learning, but that learning doesn't have to be a training course. The learning could be, well, there's a really good article on this. So read this and then talk to your line manager about it later, about how we can implement it as well. And if it's not even learning, you know, it might be something that's, that's missing like poor communication, between you know certain members of a team or certain departments or whatever you can just present it as you said to them and say this is what I found what could you do you know you don't have to solve it you can say just what could you do you could just facilitate a discussion where they agree to do something and then maybe they identify somebody identifies a lack of self-aware we didn't really know that was going on now you're aware of what's going on what action could you take well I'm going to do this now cool done so that information would have created a level of self-awareness, which is learning in itself, which would yes. a different type of behavior. So I think having that broad, definitely that broad vision will help you save a lot of money because a lot of the options outside of traditional training are cost effective and sometimes time effective as well. Because I think also thinking about how to save money on training it's also about the time element as well, because organizations seem to have less and less time to release people because of operational pressures as well. And it'll be interesting post this pandemic, you know, what that perception is, whether, you know, L&D won't be allowed <laughs> to just sort of bring back all of the training courses that, that they had in the past, they would have to justify. And I welcome that. I honestly do welcome that. In fact, a couple of years ago, I was thinking to myself, I really would like to do more online stuff because, you know, sometimes it just makes sense. But a lot of clients were uh, resistant to it. And yeah, since the pandemic, not so resistant now, are we? Now, I think I've spoken about this before. I think COVID is a catalyst. And I think what COVID has done in a lot of places is accelerated the change that was already happening. We were yeah. still, people were working more remotely and how much that impacts when we go back post-COVID and we've learned to live with what with COVID as a society and as a working environment, what that's going to look for, nobody really knows. I just want to go back about also some of the things I've heard in L&D and said, oh, we've got a training brochure. Just pick what you want to send your member of staff on. Yeah. yeah, and that goes totally against what we're talking about. As to be that. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I worked with an organisation who had, they admitted to having a massive training budget. And I worked with their line managers to, to, to help develop some of their skills in developing their people. Because basically, their view on developing their staff was a team, a member of their team would come to them and say, oh, I need a course on dot, dot, dot. And the response would be, so how much is it and when is it and where is it sort of thing. Then they would check the budget and because they had a massive budget, usually it was yes and off they would go. That was it. And L&D told me about a story of like everybody was going on confidence building course, this one particular confidence building course. And they were like going, oh, hang on a minute, what's happening? 
why is everybody all of a sudden losing their confidence? What are the managers doing to them that everybody's losing their confidence? And actually, it wasn't so much about losing their confidence. The rumour had got around that it was a really good day out. They did fantastic lunches. And so everybody wanted to go on these courses. And so part of the programme that I ran with, I asked them the question, let's imagine somebody comes to you and um, they say, oh, I need to go on this course. What's your first question? And, the fir- and I said to them, the first question can't be, how much is it? Okay. Or when is it? You know, and they were like going, why do you need this? And honestly, it was like a real revelation. And everyone was going, that's a great question. Yeah. And it was literally like, we hadn't thought of that before because if they had this massive training budget, it's like if somebody came, they just had to tell somebody how much they were going to spend, when it was, how long it was and where it was sort of thing. So they could see whether or not it fitted in with the budget and everything. But it genuinely was a real revelation that the first question that they might ask is, why do you think you need a course on dot, dot, dot? It, it, but it was fabulous to see that, you know? I tried to, I tried to mask the, the, the look of um, shock and horror on my face that they didn't know this, or the delight in my face, I should say, that they discovered this sort of thing. But, but yeah, imagine that. Imagine not asking, why do you think you need that? I think it's... A- and this goes back to what we talk about the culture as well and the process and understanding that if the process is just throw people on training course to solve problems, then training is seen as the solution and you are wasting a lot of money on your training because it's, it's, it's not looked at. So, okay, what are we trying to solve? How do we know it's being solved? And it, are we trying to solve the right thing with this training? So using the, your hire, I think will help structure people's conversations about, okay, what is it we're trying to do? then looking at, okay, what can we use to evidence this is actually what we're trying to fix, that we've identified the right thing that needs to be uh, worked on and developed. And then is the training course the right solution? And if it isn't, what other possibilities are there? And then yeah. The- and, and also there's another thing about, so yeah, let's imagine that they do go on a training course because that is the best solution. So how do you tie that training course up with any improvements in performance? Well, that has to be a conversation with their line manager, you know, about, so what are you going to get personally out of this particular course? So for instance, I mean, years ago, I did used to do IT training and I did do a spell as an Excel trainer. And, you know, loads of people came on introductory Excel, they came on intermediate and then advanced as well. But I mean, there are so many YouTube clips about Excel. Do we need to spend two days on an intermediate course if all you need to do is learn about pivot tables? It's like, what is it specifically you're going to get out of it? So these, these are really good questions it's sort of, you know, for a line manager to ask about. So what are you going to get out of it? And if all they're going to get out of it is one little thing about pivot tables, well, surely there's a YouTube clip about that or, or Sally in accounts knows how to do that, go and speak to her sort of thing. So it's not just what will you get from it or why do you think you need it or whatever. You need... Almost the line manager has to do a bit of a needs analysis themselves as well, ask those questions, because there's, there is an awful lot of money wasted. They may think they're asking the right questions, but they need to know what those questions are as well. Yeah, so I think partly one of the ways to help L&D waste less money, especially on training, is to, is to 
engage line managers in what learning can actually offer and ways of developing the types of questions. So as you say, we can turn, we can help line managers become, help us create much more robust needs analysis so that we can then choose the right option to help develop that person. Remember years ago in the organization I used to work in, we had to, we had to answer three questions to every training course that was required or uh, requested. What's the benefit to you as an individual? What's the benefit for the team? What's the benefit to the organization? Great questions. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> Great questions. And I'm, I might take that a step further is what will we be able to measure that's different? You know, if you can, if you can do this skill, if you can do <clears throat> pivot tables, how is it going to help you in your job? Or maybe it takes somebody half a day to do a report normally, but if they learn how to do pivot tables properly, it might just take them an hour so if you can start to quantify things as well, and I think sometimes people shy away from that because when you start quantifying things, if you don't reach that target, then it's a fail, isn't it? But if you don't even quantify it, you're not even, you're not even given the opportunity to, for success then. That's the way I look at it. You know, I remember somebody saying to me one time, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're playing darts and you have no dartboard, nothing to aim at, you know, you can just have the darts going anywhere. You know, this is a little bit like what happens when we send people on training. But if you've got a, a dartboard and you're telling them to aim for double top, then even if they don't quite get there, even if they just get sort of the 20, they've got more than what they would have done before. You know, so it's again, that goes back to culture about if people are very, very afraid to fail then actually putting measures to things that you might get from training or learning is a bit of a scary thing. That's where the courage comes in again. So we've got courage. What did you mention? Courage, curiosity, and influence. Yeah. Are the three, the three things. I mean, I love curiosity. It's, it's a driver. I think and surprisingly enough, apparently CRPD did some research on their 2013 profession map. Yeah. Our professionals ranked curiosity as one of the least behaviors we would require. And I think it's one of the, really that is very that's curious isn't it scott that is curious likes my curiosity and also if you're not going to ask if you're not be curious how can we improve because curiosity to me is about when why is there a better way of doing this and being um, open to new concepts and ideas but again it's about what what do you define curiosity as and how how it shows up is part yeah of yes Absolutely. I think, you know, if I don't know, it's like, how would you define curiosity that it wasn't a positive trait? Suppose using words like nosy, you're correcting me at the beginning. So using words like nosy, but actually curiosity, I think is a really positive word. So why wouldn't you want people to be curious, you know, either in L&D or HR? You know, why is this problem happened? You know, has it happened before? And it's not about digging into personal details it's about genuinely if, if you are looking to solve the problem then you need to uncover what the problem really is isn't it and I think for me it's always been a very natural part of what I do in learning development because of my engineering background because you know in, in engineering you had to define the problem very very precisely in order to be able to design something which fit because this was you know, the company I worked for made power station boilers and other sorts of boilers. And so you couldn't be woolly in defining what sort of power did you need roughly, you know, roughly. You had to be precise, you know, and you had to know the parameters that you're working in. And so for me, it's always been quite natural. 
But I, I see that it's not always natural in learning and development. I don't think it is. I think sometimes we shy away from the, the measurement because we say, well, you know, how do we know that the training is the one thing? And some of them, it can be more difficult to say, right, send somebody on training. How do we know that's the one thing that's created the better leaders? Or how did we know that's the one thing that's created the increased sales? Because it's obviously there's lots of other things post-training event that influence that as well. As you talked about the culture and the environment and the support or the lack of support or what have you and personality. But I do think we, and we sometimes shy away from said, well, how do you measure attitude? Because we do a lot of attitudinal change. And I said, well, what does that, to me, I think, again, we're talking about the wrong thing. You don't want to measure the attitude. You want to measure the behaviours the attitudes generate. Yes, absolutely. And those things you can observe, can't you? And observation is a valid, a valid statistic. Because observation is the basis of a lot of our performance management structure. Yeah. And actually, I might just challenge you a little bit on that one there, not to be too controversial here. There are times that you can measure a change in attitude. So if, for instance, you've got an objective that by the end of something, somebody is going to adopt this method of training or to advocate the use of something, you know, at the end of a training course, you know, you could actually get them to write reasons why you're going to put this into practice, you know, and that's a way of measuring whether or not an attitude has changed. It's not measuring whether they actually change it, but it is measuring a switch. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you could do that. Or you, at the end of the train, you can say something, okay, so this is what we've done. You know, you're going back to work. What's your action plan from implementing it? What yes, yeah, great. How are you going to do it? Yeah. And say, right, that we get a copy of that and it goes to your line manager because that's what you're agreeing is your personal development plan moving. Yes. And that measures the behaviours then as well. So um, sorry to drop that in. Just the, uh, had to have a bit of controversy there. Oh, it's controversy is good. I lo- yes, I like, it is. I like, because again, it's, it's about it's to me curious is the ability to question i don't even like the word challenge because i think challenge can be aggressive in some way yes it can curious to be say do you know what i'm just interested in that and then people just say oh just interested why that happening and what makes you think that this is or what what is it that supports your view that you want this done or whatever it is how they were really badly phrased this question i wouldn't probably ask them that way but yeah. that, that digging deeper that really trying to we don't want to be a doctor who deals with the symptoms i want to be a doctor who deals with the ailment yeah and 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 sometimes i frame it in the way of oh i'd really like to get to the bottom of, of of this problem that you have i want to help you to create the best solution to solve this problem for you and you know and and do you do you have some time to discuss this well if you go to somebody and say i want to create the best solution for you i don't see that as being confrontational or anything it's more helpful and so it's it's finding ways that you can speak to your stakeholders in a way that isn't sort of just challenging them you know that it's about curiosity but it's about being helpful and you know problem solving so I think problem solving getting a list I'm writing a list down here I don't know about you so problem solving and also creating solutions and it might not be creating, it might be curating or facilitating. I'm changing my words as I'm writing that, Scott. I, curating or creating or facilitating the best solutions as well. I looked at where you see L&D's role in your organisation might influence how you would structure that sentence. I see, I see L&D as the curator of learning in an organisation, not the owner. 
Yes. Yeah, um, that's a good way of putting it. Facilitator of learning with an organization, not necessarily the owner. So I would go to maybe another thing then is on top of influence is collaboration so that we can co-create with people. Yes. Yeah. So that again, the good thing about co-creation with people, it creates an environment where they're saying, yeah, we're on board with this as well. We've helped develop this and they could be involved in the, the implementation and, and then they're on board. And so the money that's been invested, they can see the value in that money because they've co-created that solution as well. Mm. So do you know what? This is helping me achieve this. I can see the value is going to add. This is why it's important to me. This is what I'm going to be looking out for to help. And then this is so we can then, because I went to, I was in a conference in Dubai, which sounds much, much, much more uh, um, glamorous than it actually was. Talk about performance management. And the guy before me was speaking about KPIs and organizer or KPIs. And he says the most effective KPIs are the KPIs that somebody has ownership of, but not the full ability to deliver. Because mm. then that encourages, but they're the better ones. They're then the more effective where the KPIs actually have ownership of somebody, but they go yes. out yeah. ownership for delivery. So it creates collaboration. So we use an example is if you wanted to re- reduce road deaths, because he, he, he does government ones, he doesn't do organization ones. Yeah. Using road deaths, who owns that KPI? He said, well, if we give it to the police, because the police are that, but they, they don't, then, then you need to talk about the people who design roads. Then you, not, then you also need to talk about the people who create the rules for the roads. Then you need to also talk about, well, if we're going to, how are we going to get to people in road accidents? So it also it opens up this whole conversation around this one thing we want to solve. So I might own it. So I'll be driving it, but I'll be bringing other people on board to help deliver that outcome. And it's interesting, actually, Scott, as you were saying that, I was thinking we are more able now to actually do that collaboration than than we were perhaps two or three years ago because of the tools that are available. I use Mural quite a lot in in the training that I deliver, but also I use it as a way of getting ideas, generating ideas from people I don't even sometimes meet. I just put it out on LinkedIn and get people's ideas or whatever. But we've got these tools out there and things like, you know, with so many companies putting teams, MS teams in into their organizations, we have the tools to be able to collaborate so much more, you know, so maybe part of L&D's remit now is how do we actually do that co-creation thing and collaboration thing using the tools that are emerging and the tools that that the organization has as well we seem to have gone off topic a little bit as well this is another rabbit hole isn't it well i just wrote a blog which is going released today yeah for us too but it could be any time depending on when this gets actually and that's looking at how we lnd can create impactful solutions that are basically very low cost in terms of time and money yes yeah that's a, a good one. Allowing things to happen in the workplace, but create, but understanding that the, the context of how that happens. And it does require a lot of collaboration and co-creation. I'm working yeah, with- I'm, just about, I'm just about to deliver a program for a client that, that used to be mostly, it was face-to-face, but there were some online elements, there were some articles, there were videos, all sorts of things. And running this through Microsoft Teams has made me think in a different way. Because we've got, we still got um, an element of face-to-face. We've still got some online stuff. We've still got the articles and the YouTube stuff. But we've also got a facility to actually just co-create some documents as well. And we can do that quite easily. And so it's making me think differently. So I'm not trying to recreate 
what I used to do with the face-to-face, mostly face-to-face, what I'm trying to do is leverage the platform that I'm on to actually make it even better so that people are thinking, yeah, this is really good. And actually, I couldn't have done that that easily. I know there was, there was an activity that we used to do between workshops, and it was about just opening people up to the fact that there's more than you know, just a couple of ways to learn. Because if I ask people, how do you learn then? They'll say, oh, training course, you know, because that's the, the common answer. But if I challenge them, I used to challenge the group to say, collectively, come up with 50 ways to learn. So there's 10 of you, so you only have to come up with five ways each. And they'd all look at me and hor- there can't be 50 ways to learn. And I've actually got a list of 100 plus ways that, that you can learn. And they used to do it via emails to each other. And then somebody would type up a list or cut and paste the list and everything. How easy is it now when we've got these online tools to actually just create something where you just type in your own thoughts and nobody has to do the cutting and pasting and all of that sort of stuff. It's fantastic that we have these these tools now available. I think that's still, that still is relevant to what we talk about with saving how to not yeah. on training because... The ability to do things virtually now, yeah. money, so we can actually deliver training that's more cost effective. And as you say, if we can use that collaboration tools effectively within the training, we then produce an outcome that's measurable as well, or can be applied because it could have a tangible outcome at the end of a program. Yeah, and if we use those tools, it's sort of like I'm not. I am not advocating getting rid of face to face because there's a certain buzz and energy that you get from meeting up. We've all missed it. We've absolutely all missed it through the pandemic. But what what happens is that by giving them some sort of activity and a collaboration, which is easy, it prepares them for when we do meet up to even have bigger ideas and more ideas you know you can do more stuff beforehand and so that those times when we we do get get together physically it's it's sort of like I don't know what the word is it enhances it that's it it enhances that experience even more yeah I think and that's another way of looking at it so not so we've concentrated a lot on understanding the training you're delivering if that's if that one finding out is a solution that's required and making sure that the training has a defined impact that we can measure and we've got stakeholder buying and we're doing this i think the other thing about how not to waste money on training which is a whole different topic which we've covered a little bit here is then think about the actual design of that training intervention and say what are we going to do pre post uh, and during how can we leverage the different methods that we can actually share information and collaborate with each other to make it as effective as possible and the most expensive aspect of most training is the face-to-face aspect yeah <laughs> predominantly the most expensive so i would say what are you going to do when you look at how this is going to be structured to ensure that that time that people spend with that face-to-face interaction has the biggest impact yeah what can we do absolutely. before in what can we do to help the collaboration how can we make that more effective so that the time we spend the most expensive aspect is where that expertise you're bringing somebody in who's a facilitator and a, and a subject matter expert whatever it is you're bringing them bringing them in for a reason the time they spend with the participants should be a bit fully utilizing that skill set they've got and what you're paying mm. for and this quite- could be a whole other podcast on how do you how, how might we not waste money on, you know, within the design aspect of delivering learning? So the sort of more strategic. Yeah. And the other bit is, is an important element to think about. 
Yes, absolutely. And I think opening people's minds to the possibility that there's more than just a couple of methods, you know, that that might be suitable, that it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be anything face to face, it doesn't have to be online, it doesn't have to be e-learning, because those tend to be the choices, <clears throat> you know, it's either face to face, online, digital type, you know, uh, online classroom, or it could be e-learning, you know, those are the three choices. And actually, it's much, much wider than that as well, Scott. And I'll give you one, because it's going out anyway. So it's, it's something I, I, I created. I, I love this game. I was just talking to somebody once and they were talking about, they're having a conversation and people are interrupting. They said, I wish they wouldn't interrupt. They're just talking over me or whatever else and they're not listening. And I thought, well, that could be a whole communication training. I said, yeah, let's think about this. So I created a little activity called Lip Sync. And so basically, as you go about your day-to-day, in every conversation you have, sync your lips. Every time somebody speaks, your lips stop moving. And I'm trying to do that. As you said that, I was trying to do that and I was trying to listen to what you were saying. So that's a really cool game, actually, to help people to listen more. So when, when somebody else is speaking, you make sure your lips aren't. So you yes. your lips with theirs. You don't actually have to word what they're saying, but you're concentrating on and then you don't interrupt. Now, if you had everyone in your organization playing that game today, then the entire organization is developing a skill within the workplace that takes no time, no effort, no money. Yeah. Developing a communication skill within the organization, which enhances communication across the whole organization. I love that. I love that. Everybody else will be latching onto that now. Scott, you're doing yourself out of a job. Oh, I I love designing little activities like that. I know, I know, yeah. They can be impactful, they take no time, and they can be run in the day-to-day working environment. So... And if you imagine if you're L&D and you can create them and you can, you say, right, we want a whole communication series of these every Monday morning, you give, right, this is the game for the week. And people just play that game all week. And then next week you do this one. And then each one's laying on different skills of communication. You're enhancing communication in the workplace and the impact is felt when people are using it, which is where you want the development to be. So that's an example of how you can design it. Learning into Brilliant. Definitely another podcast, definitely. Definitely. There was just one thing, one last thing I wanted to actually uh, mention. And those people who know me already know that I'm a bit of a a geek when it comes to objectives. And for those people who find it really hard to write objectives, because the whole point of actually doing any sort of analysis is so that you have something to aim for, you know, that you've got something that you can measure. And if you've never come across it before, then Robert Major's PCS framework is a fantastic one to enable people to write really smart objectives. I never used to really get it. You know, when people say smart objectives, got to be specific, measurable, achievable. And I'd, and I'd like to think, yeah, but how do I make it like that? Well, Robert Major's framework, if you've never seen it, uh, experienced it, actually helps you to write smart objectives. And so it's a bit of, it's a, bit of a, a chore when you start, but once you get into it, you start to really ask questions about what aspect of performance are you actually trying to change? Or if it happens to be a training objective or learning objective, how will you know that that's been achieved? And it even goes as far as, well, under what circumstances? So is that going to be an individual exercise or a group exercise? Do you need to know that every individual can do that? Or is it okay that the just the group as, as a whole could do it? So it's a really fantastic, and I can't 
ever sort of not share it with with people about how good Robert Major's PCS framework is for setting objectives. Uh, and if, you, if anyone out there is listening to this and really struggles, I tell you, just pick up the phone to me. I'll, I'll, it's an absolute joy for me to, uh, to help people do that because it makes such a difference. And I'll tell you how, actually, is that I remember in a workshop working with some line managers and we were using this framework and we were saying, uh, right, I want you to write some objectives for, you know, some of the issues that you've got at the moment. And this one lady, she just looked absolutely bemused. She was really, really struggling throughout this whole thing. And I went up to her and I said, well, what's happening? She said, I just can't write an objective for this. So I just started to ask her questions. So tell me, what, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And it was a lady that had been put onto a performance improvement plan. And what she wanted to do was to be able to write an objective that would help this lady to know how to get off the performance improvement plan, what the measure would be. And also she would know as well. And as I asked her these questions, she just suddenly went, I know what I'm doing here, Christina. I'm trying to create one objective where actually I need five different measures because those are five different aspects of her job. And it was this huge light bulb moment for her that, you know, she could then see. So she got that sorted and then that sorted and then that sorted this woman could come off her performance improvement plan so i like to spread that joy scott consider it spread consider it joy the joy is spreading now i think anyone who looks at objectives i think it's a again there's another podcast in in itself about how do we define successful outcomes because once you do that then you can actually demonstrate value you're adding because you're saying this is what we're doing this is the outcomes we've got and this is how it's impacted so I do, but again, I go back to what you said at the beginning, inquire first, be real clear about what you're trying to do, making sure that the training is the solution. And then that gives you the thread that goes through everything. So, yep. I say that was a fabulous summary. Yes, indeed. As Stephen Covey said, that starts with the end in mind. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes, and it's in my book as well. Begin with the end in mind, it's in there, it is. And the other one that I like, and this is, this is actually one of mine, is context is everything. You know, you can't design training in a vacuum, you know? King. A bit like Pardon? That. There's a bit of the, the frame on context is king instead of content is king. Yes. But yeah, and I, and I think, well, that's another reason we can go to another area where we can talk about why I don't particularly like best practice. Okay. Right. We won't go there then. To me, that encourages uh, standardization. Yeah. 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 That's a good viewpoint indeed. Like best principles. Yes. And that gives you the flexibility to do it within context. But there we go. All right. So thank you very much again, uh, Chris, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. We've meandered of various topics, but we've come back to where we started which is i think we have actually i think quite successfully i think we've sort of like what do they call it topping and tailing we've topped and tailed it we've meandered a little bit but we've topped and tailed a bit like a billy Connolly story for those old enough to remember yes 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 i used to love his stories and i'm sure you may be back on another one when we talk about something else but thank you thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure scott you're welcome